This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Welcome to this week's episode of Burn It All Down. It's the feminist sports podcast you need. We at Burn It All Down are consistently inspired by the resistors and the change makers. We strive to get in good trouble. And on that note, we would like to honor the spirit of disruption and the bright lights of the freedom fighters, Reverend C.T. Vivian and Rep. John Lewis. Both died on July 17th, and may they rest in power. During this COVID-19 pandemic, we at Burn It All Down are extending our love and solidarity to those who are on the front lines of every sector, those who cannot stay home, those working from home that have gone back to work, those staying in, caretakers, parents, animal lovers, and folks in every community, providing support systems online and where you can. And also to those missing sports, whatever the sport is, if it hasn't come back, who feel isolated or trapped. And we hope this show gives you something to think of and to laugh about. And well, burn. I'm Shereen Ahmed, freelance writer and sports activist in Toronto, and I'm leading the toxic femininity charge today. And on this week's panel, we have the fiery and brilliant Dr. Miros Davis, forever escape room champion and assistant professor of history and African-American studies at Penn State. And we have the indomitable Lindsay Gibbs with the most beautiful laugh and mightiest pen, freelance sports reporter and creator of the Power Plays newsletter, Sign up at powerplace.news. She's in D.C. Before I start, we'd like to thank our patrons for their generous support and to remind our new flamethrowers about our Patreon campaign. You pledge a certain amount monthly, as low as $2 and as high as you want, to become an official patron of the podcast. In exchange for your monthly contribution, you get access to special rewards. And with the price of a latte a month, you can get access to extra segments of the podcast a monthly vlog, and an opportunity to record on the burn pile, only available to those in our Patreon community. So far, we have been able to solidify funding and proper editing and transcripts and production. But Burn It All Down is a labor of love, and we believe in this podcast. And we are so grateful for your support and happy that our flame-throwing community is growing. And we have a kick-ass show for you this week. We will be discussing the alleged abuse in the Washington NFL team, and then Amira has an interview with Dr. Samantha Shepard about her new book, Sporting Blackness, Race, Embodiment, and Critical Muscle Memory on the Screen. And they talk about what to make of Colin Kaepernick's new media deals. So let's dive right in here. And the first thing we're going to do is we're going to do a quick rapid fire question. So my question to you two, friends. What thing happened in sports that you did not expect? I just say everything in NASCAR, like the all the Black Lives, people saying Black Lives Matter in NASCAR, 
uh, having PSAs about race and um, the support for Baba. I know it hasn't been perfect, but what we've seen, I never would have expected six months ago, ever, maybe two months ago. Mira? Well, them shutting down in the first place was still, it's, I mean, part of that is disbelief about the pandemic. And then also the Washington football team name change just because Snyder is such an asshole that I never thought. But anyways, I'm so, so glad. Everybody hear the hot take about that if you haven't yet. All right, bye. (laughs) Mine is going to be for sure, Don Cherry getting fired. I know it was before 2020, but it was almost like it was a precursor to the the interesting things that would happen in the realm of sport. Amira, can you get us started on this conversation, please? I had a, you know, week maybe or so that was great. And I was like, yes, this is exactly what I wanted and what was explained to me. And this is going to be great. And then, you know, you get your first like screaming at you for something that you it's not your fault and then somebody makes a comment to you about what you're wearing and it just snowballs from there and it really took most people no time to comment on my appearance and it really took no time for Mitch to let me know that I was incompetent of doing small tasks that that's the voice of Emily Applegate in an interview recently released with the Washington Post Emily and 14 other former employees of the Washington football team have gone on record with tremendous reporting by Liz Clark and Will Hobson to talk about the frequent sexual harassment and verbal abuse they they endured as employees of the Washington football team. This report on WashPo includes interviews with former and current employees anonymously, many who signed NDAs and therefore have requested anonymity to speak. And so today we're going to have a talk about this report and all of the ripples, all of the consequences or not, and the patterns of abuse that we see within this organization and more generally. Lindsay? Yeah, to start this out, I want to say, so for last week, Every day, DC media started kind of teasing the story, like people within DC media, and then it it spread to national NFL media started saying a big story about the Washington NFL team is coming down the pipes bigger than the name change. This might really be the end for Dan Snyder. And it was, you know, multiple people starting on Monday would tweet this every single day. This is big. Get ready. In a very get your popcorn ready type of thing, it led to a lot of speculation on message boards and on Reddit, which I guess is a message board, and really just throughout the internet. And it was incredibly gross because it was very clear early on that this was going to be an actually very serious story that probably had actual victims (laughs) and real people. And when it came out late Thursday afternoon, there had been already three and a half days of this baseless speculation. And it made me so angry. Not only was I kept thinking about the women who came forward in this story, who had to watch that speculation happen in real time. But it really made me wonder, why are we centering this as a Dan Snyder story? This is not a story about Dan Snyder. I want Dan Snyder to leave as much as anyone, but this is not a story about Dan Snyder. And these men who are wanting to make this a story about Dan Snyder 
really makes me feel they just want to change the subject. They don't want to have the real conversation about uh, sexual harassment within the sports industry that needs to be had. And in many ways, you know, this is not a new story. The locker room has been a bastion of abuse and harassment, particularly for women in sporting roles for a very long time. Just a kind of historical you know, look back for those who aren't, um, haven't been as familiar with this history. In the, in the sixties, it was really unheard of to have women sports reporters generally, but especially in locker rooms. In the seventies, what you saw, like, for instance, by the mid seventies, only 7% of credentialed American journalists, for instance, to the Olympics were women. So you had a relatively low number. And the NHL actually broke the barrier here after the All-Star game where they credentialed a lot of women to go and report in the locker room. But it wasn't until the late 70s where Melissa Ludic, um had to sue. She was covering uh, the MLB for Sports Illustrated and Major League Baseball issued a ruling against her, issued a statement that said that they refused to have women in the locker room because they wanted to, quote, protect the image of baseball as a family sport and, quote, preserve traditional notions of decency and propriety. However, the U.S. District Court in 1978 ruled that it violated her 14th Amendment right and the fundamental right to pursue her profession. And that's one of the barriers that fell. It hasn't been peachy clean since then. We've really since then have just seen a litany of stories. So this is part of a long, a much longer history of abuse that women reporters have have faced for trying to do their damn jobs, both as reporters and as employees working within these locker room spaces. And so if you're kind of gleefully watching this with popcorn because it took, you feel like it's karma for taking so long for them to change the name or you're like what can we expect from that cesspool etc cetera, etc cetera. know that it's happening so many other places as well i just burned last week the boston red sox for you know decades of abuse of predominantly black clubhouse attendance these harmful occurrences within these sporting spaces that are tightly kind of wrapped so you can't see the inner workings and therefore in the dark a lot of things can happen is the bigger picture on which we're planting this story centered on Washington. Another thing that, as Amira just mentioned, which I think is really important, it is really easy to dislike this team. But the other thing is that this history of misogyny is not new to this team. And of course, like Racial abuse is, is clear, but homophobia, sexual harassment, and racialized abuse don't happen to necessarily be very far from each other most times. And a story came out in 2018 with the New York Times about what cheerleaders who uh, worked with or work with the NFL team, what they've experienced and stuff as heroin as like they felt that they were, quote unquote, pimped out to season ticket holders and sweet box holders and expected to go and perform and be pretty and do topless photo shoots and were whisked away in a private jet and expected to literally be kind to. And it was, it was insulting. It was abusive and it was unnecessary. And so I just really like this conversation we're having about accountability and what that looks like, but not to be, as Amira said, gleeful about any of this because there are still very, very real victims here. And I think that that last story gets to one of the most frustrating hearts of this report, be it cheerleaders, 
team employees, league employees, reporters, right? It's almost like women's bodies in sporting spaces are the problem, right? They're treated as such. They're treated as ornamental. They're treated as something that needs to be disciplined or, or commented on because they're encroaching, right? When when I mentioned that, that uh, lawsuit in the late 70s, one of the things that was said was like when the, the headline in Time Magazine when the lawsuit came down saying that women could actually report from locker rooms was that the last bastion of male journalism has fallen, right? And I feel like we're still in a place where whether as athletes, as workers in a variety of roles, that women within sports are fighting tooth and nail to hang on to the small piece that they've been given, right? They're tossed crumbs and told to say thank you. It's like everybody's sitting in chairs. You're told to stand in the back of the room and then thank people for being there. And the fact of the matter is that this is their jobs that they couldn't do, whether it was cheerleading or reporting or working for the damn organization. They couldn't do it. You cannot, they couldn't do their jobs. And that, that, that to me is, is the thing. There's a quote in our friend Brenda, Dr. Brenda Elsie's book that she co-wrote with Joshua Nadel about football era. And this is a book that deals with women's uh, soccer, football in Latin America. And so you would think, well, why am I quoting that book? Uh, uh, you know, and this quote comes from a century ago, like I said, in Latin America and talking about a different sport. But Brenda is brilliant. And so the quote I keep thinking about is, in looking through media correspondence and memoirs of the time, it is apparent that men viewed sports clubs as an escape from domestic life. Women's presence, unless as a spectacle, ruined that escape from familial obligations in the eyes of many men. And I just, that comes up time and time again. And the part of this report from the Washington Red, the, the Washington football team that really um, sticks out to me is the fact that there was a plexiglass see-through staircase in the lobby, and it came, went up all the way from the locker room. And so men in the locker room would look up women's skirts at this plexiglass see-through staircase. And I can't stop thinking about this damn plexiglass staircase. It is a fucking metaphor of how this space is literally not built with women in mind. This space was literally not built with any idea, any compassion that women would be a part of this at all. And if they were going to be a part of this, we're going to humiliate them. We're going to degrade them. And I think there are fucking different versions of this plexiglass staircase everywhere. But what ends up happening is that women that are associated with and work with those places that inherently feed into the system and in the industry of sexism are talking about it. And then what happens is there's a bit of a backlash there. And I think that that's something else we have to keep in mind, that this is complicated and it's multi-layered. And we stand in solidarity with those that have affected it, but also those that are working hand-in-hand with places that continue to propel and prop up this type of system of toxicity. I mean, it's a fucking mess. Next up. Amira's interview with Dr. Sam Shepard. I just think it's a lot of fun, if I must say. I mean, this is like the best thing I've ever written. And you're mm-hmm. probably thinking, I haven't written anything else, read anything else. That, that stuff is really good, too. But like, this is the best. That's Dr. Samantha Shepard talking to me about her new book, Sporting Blackness, Race, Embodiment, and Critical Muscle Memory on Screen. 
Dr. Shepard is an assistant professor of cinema and media studies in the Department of Performing and Media Arts at Cornell University. And this is another Burn It All Down Scholar Spotlight. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate being on here with you for many reasons, one of which is that your work has been really, really um, helpful to me, and I really appreciated your great read of A League of Their Own. And so Ooh. this book is about sports films. And yeah, your 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 read of that opening moment with, not that opening moment, but that moment with the- The um, 21 black, seconds. Yeah. <laughs> Blackness. Black woman, <laughs> a black woman throwing the, throwing the ball was really helpful. Well, thank you. That's super meaningful to me. Um, And I'm beyond excited for this brilliant work of yours. Um, I love on the abstract of your book, one of the things it says is this not only about the skin in the game, but the skin in the genre. And what you're really looking at here is blackness in sports films. I'm so here for this. So where did this project start? So Sporting Blackness really has been a project that's been in the work since I was a graduate student. I'm trained in cinema and media studies, but I have a deep um, appreciation and respect for um, sports. I'm, a, I guess, a former soccer player. You know, at the end there um, for Dartmouth, I was really playing the bench, but, but you know, riding that, riding that well, my brain shin guards out after a while, but, um, <laughs> you know, chilling. But no, I have a really deep love and affection and appreciation, but also a deep ambivalence about sports. I was interested in what I thought was a really neglected genre of sports films where you see just these groups of Black men and occasionally women on screen, and people were not talking about them because sports films themselves are usually um, considered to be quite popular fare, largely innocuous, melodramatic. It's, you know, the Cool Runnings bit, you know, just really like a lot of clapping for like nothing um it's it's you know and people people don't really respect the genre in that way unless they're you know um it's like raging bull or something and what i was really sort of seeing was like how can we understand issues of race and representation beyond just pointing out stereotypes oh this person is played at athletic this person their body is like jazz you know things like that to really think through the formal consequences both in terms of what happens in cinema but also how we can read performativity athleticism in a more complex and consequential way and so this book is really that study it It's a study that looks at embodiment, looks at performativity, looks at blackness as a theoretical motor, a performance that is contested by um, black bodies on screen and um, specifically offers this framework to think about the ways in which black bodies are made to mean and mean again on screen, particularly through this concept I coined called critical muscle memory. Right. So you coined this term critical muscle memory. Can you break this down for us? Obviously, is a term with muscle memory that makes us think about human kinetics, but also for those who are well up into their Black studies, think about um, critical memory and Black memory and Black memorial practices and through trauma studies. So critical muscle memory gets at that embodied kinesthetic um, and cinematic histories that end up becoming represented on screen in really complex ways, sometimes the representation themselves and their originary source historical period, but also manipulated through the camera, whether that be through, you know, the framing um, of a shot, um, the use of cameo, a genre and production mode. And so I look at documentaries, I look at experimental video, I look at short films, I look at Hollywood films, I look at the, the, the unfortunate, vast 
the sort of vast nothingness of Black women representation, which is just mm-hmm. tragic because we are just so damn excellent <laughs> in sports yeah. that it's just cruel, um, the lack of um, stories that are told on screen. And I hopefully do it in a way that means that it's meaningful across disciplines to people who study film, people who study African-American representation in general, people who study African-American studies, sports studies, and of course, American studies. But also, I would say it's really important read for all of us who just like are lay consumers of of these things. Like that to me is one of the critical things that your work is doing because all of us, it's very easy to watch All American. It's very easy to watch mm-hmm. the game. It's very easy to pop in and be nostalgic about a league of their own or about Remember the Titans. And, you know, obviously I'm a historian and nobody likes to watch movies with historians. And yes, I can actually enjoy things. But I think that one of the things you point to is there's real there's dangers but also possibilities but real harm if what we receive is left uncriticized or unexamined what is the most surprising thing as you were doing this research as you were pulling it together as you were doing this analysis what surprised you the most about what you discovered in the process of writing this book i think that's such a great question because as you know when you're you're writing you're with something for a really long time and so Things don't often creep up on you because you feel like you've been searching for them forever. So, But there was like a paragraph on Booby Miles in that dissertation. And what surprised me was that paragraph would become chapter two, which is about him as a sort of black familiar racial icon um, and his transmedia representations. You know God made black Booby Miles, the former standout Texas football player, one of the main subjects of Friday Night Lights, the book by H.D. Bissinger. Of course, that book would become a movie, which would become a TV show. His media representation wouldn't stop there, of course. In 2010, Big Crit would release the song Hometown Hero, a clip of which you just heard, featuring clips from Booby Miles' character in Friday Night Lights. And of course, a few years later, would follow up with a song entitled Booby Miles. The ways in which his body and his story has been morphed so much on screen. And when I first started the chapter, I didn't even fully realize where it was going until I finally heard Big Crits. I first heard Booby Miles and I was like, okay, that's fine. Yes, he's you know, been taken and he's this, it's, it's this song. But when I heard his first, his first engagement with Booby for Hometown There's something happening. Black people are taking Booby back. He gets to be the hometown hero. He's not in Friday Night Lights, the book, as this this, um, injured, failed Black body. He's not in Friday Night Lights, the movie, as this, you know, pathological, you know, failed Black body. He's not cut up and spliced into the television show as Smash and Voodoo and whatever Michael B. Jordan's character's name is. I should know because I wrote it down somewhere. But he's not those people who need white redemption. 
right? He goes back into, he becomes a hometown hero, which is what he always is. And I, and I ended there in the book. And I think I, I later had to put something in a footnote. The footnotes are also where the business is at. People read the footnotes, but there's something really interesting. I was surprised because I thought, oh, this is going to be his last reworking on screen. And it wasn't because if, for those who don't know, Booby, um, James Booby Miles of uh, Friday Night Lights Infamy is currently incarcerated. And so the last time actually he's seen on screen is in the documentary uh, about H.G. Bissinger, the author of Friday Night Lights, um, called Buzz, who goes to visit him in prison. So his last screened version is like the, the arc, the, the total pathological arc that is created in Friday Night Lights, the film, right? So we know when he gets injured and he can't do nothing but play football, that he's going to go from sending his, you know, uncle's car to, you know, not finishing college to this assumed place of the prison, right? Visually in our heads. And it becomes screen in this very, very traumatic way. And so I'm glad that in the book, it ends with him becoming this hometown hero. It ends with Big, Big Crit using his virtuosity to basically own, you know, the Southern landscape sonically and, and visually, as opposed to what ends up happening cinematically, which is that, you know, he becomes this after effect that is all too common, just like the injury narrative, all too common. And I say all too common, not because of just the numbers, but in terms of the cultural imaginary of what we think is supposed to be common. So that's, that's I would say, perhaps the most surprising and also my favorite chapter of the, of the book. So you have a, yeah. um, the last chapter, you talk about, um, you know, the revolt of the Black athlete and depictions of that. And I thought that was a good entry point into discussion. One of the things that we've seen recently is a lot of news about one Colin Kaepernick and some moves that he's been making. And then what does this mean, right, about perhaps like a, if you were to kind of pair on the epilogue or like continue to track the evolution of this when it's not only um, about the depiction of the revolt of the Black athlete, but also a Black athlete who's been in revolt, who is also guiding the production in a way that is framing the new depictions of his own story, but also larger images and messaging? Such a really great question. I have been thinking ever since I saw um, the Variety announcement about Kaepernick's New Deal with Disney, right? So Disney, ESPN, and Disney is well known for its sports films. You named one of them. Remember, the Titans, so popular. They also gave us the Air Bud series. Yes, they've given us Million million Dollar Arm, Glory Road, The Rookie, Miracle, The Mighty Ducks. I mean, if anything, it's interesting that we think about, and it's Walt Disney Pictures and Buena Vista, the um, distributor, but that this deal is happening, as you said, alongside other major conglomerate deals that he's create um, that he's that he's helped broker with Amazon slash Audible, and of course with Netflix. And I think what's really interesting because I've been trying to tell people that as a person who writes about sports films, Colin Kaepernick has so much pressure <laughs> in certain ways to narrativize the end of his film. Right. So the thing is, we're all like, we want Cap to get a job, right? Get him back out there. What, you know, oh, it's, but does Cap have a job? Y'all want to sit here and play the, you know, lift every voice, but, you know, does Cap? And I keep thinking, I was like, think about this cinematically. 
right? So we're in the third act and, you know, this generation's Denzel, which may also just be his son, John David Washington, or actually, let's be honest, Chadwick Boseman, who's playing every single, like, you know, black significant black bio, yes. right? So Chadwick Boseman is, is Colin Kaepernick in Cap, the movie, right? And so think about that third act, right? So this is what we're trying to figure out, what that third act is. And usually we think, okay, we need the sports film arc sort of pushes this kind of narrative that there needs to be this happy resolution. We don't want Friday Night Lights. We don't want them to get to the, to just two inches from the line. You know, we want a big story, varsity blues kind of ending, left side, strong side moment. And his life may not actually be that way. We don't, in fact, it's, it's the biggest gamble. I'm not saying I don't want this man to work. And this is not what I'm saying. I want him to have all the things, but it's an interesting biggest gamble for him actually to play. So instead to play yeah, with your image, absolutely. to play with your media, to play with your story is actually super powerful as opposed to writing that third act, the way in which we have been culturally accustomed to have to tell this story. Like he has to win the big game or this movie is just a little different than the other ones, right? He stands for something. It's the same reason why, look, we still have not narrativized Tommy Smith and John Carlos, right? There's been a recuperative gesture. There's been the, you know, you got your Arthur Ashe Award, right? They show up in some movies. They show up, remember the Titans on a poster book, you know, behind Julius, but they don't have their movie because writing that third act is really problematic, right? It's like a story of strife. And so it's interesting that these deals are kind of happening, but the problem that I sort of see with this, with these deals is that they are functioning though, like all kinds of sports media and sports films. So like ESPN, who's working with, like, which is crazy, ESPN, the same people who, you know, fix their face every day to say Colin is this and that. Now they're like, Jimmy, from ESPN's president is like, quote, Colin has had a singular path as both an athlete and an activist. So ahistorical. You know that is so ahistorical. And as the nation continues to confront racism and social injustice, it feels particularly relevant <laughs> to hear Colin's voice on his evolution and motivations. So that's what the ESPN's president is saying, because that's what they need to be. To be a sports film, it has to be a singular narrative. We can be a team sport, but we need to focus on one person. We need, what's his face from Glory Road? We need Derek Luke in every sports film. What do you call it? As that person to focus on, right? Because he's a singular story, right? And we've already been told, be, be weary of a singular story. Because we know that he's not. Even when we talk about, you know, athletes and activism and media, it's like, wait, so Craig Hodges, is he, was he on right. a singular path? Or are these like, how many paths, how many roads? Have oh my God, what if we like considered women? Then like, <laughs> no, maybe women we're don't in a forest with multiple paths. <laughs> this would be never, don't even do it. But it's interesting that he would have, and it'll be interesting to see what kinds of quote unquote control he has to, to tell this story. And will it be the Disney story? Will it be mm. the McFarlane USA story? Because that's what the narrative arc is doing. I think that there's my friend, Kristen Warner, an amazing uh, scholar, has this term called plastic representation. And it really gets at the idea that people are really okay with just taking this image as something, as opposed to thinking about what the, like, it's just plastic, the substance or the cultural specificity or, or who's controlling all of this stuff. And it's so looking back at ESPN, Amazon, Netflix, Michaela Cole couldn't even work with Netflix. I'm not saying that Colin does not have 
control. I'm not saying that, that he doesn't have a, a way in which his voice is going to be foregrounded, but I'm just saying that Disney has a sporting arc, a sporting media arc. And this version is going to, yes, let Colin be a hero, a singular athlete, which is exactly the opposite of what's supposed to be happening. He should be a refraction. You should look through him to see many others, the multitudes, because that's what I think his silence, his strategic silence has been about. Like, listen to the all the voices, not just my own. So this moment where he's becoming the singular path, singular voice, singular athlete, singular activist, and it's becoming mediated is a really, really concerning way to think about how his narrative is going to be controlled, especially because the third act isn't written. And trust me, nobody's going to watch the Colin Kaepernick movie where he then goes and he becomes, you know, what do you call uh, a movie executive? Like at the end, like that's not the switch up. (laughs) Exactly. You know, I, first of all, it was bars to move from silence to now like having very real platforms on which to speak, even if it's mediated is so interesting to try to track the kind of evolution with that. And in what ways does that space that once was silence that amplified others become a lean into the singular symbol and reinforce that, that actually now takes up spaces that elides the work of others like the WNBA is doing. And, you know, where's Maya Moore's media deal is the other way of putting it. That's, that's um, exactly, that's such a good key point. And I want to even go back to your point about if he were to come back into the league and not just to be bad, which would be one thing, again, it would just screw up the third act of the film, right? There'd be good. But remember, good in sporting requires such excellence that good mm. is, has to, it has to end in the Super Bowl, right. right? It has to end at that moment. Having, you know, being like, you know, seven for six or whatever like it's not it's that is not enough the bar that has to be cleared in this sort of narrative world so it's interesting that if he would the thing about what happens in my last chapter i i I don't look at a ali film despite people (laughs) wanting that but i talked about a different film a film called hourglass by Haile garima because the protagonist just stopped playing it's a conscious choice. It's, it's a revolutionary literacy that comes from reading about the same things that we, we know Colin has begun to throw himself into, you know, talking with Harry Edwards, learning about, you know, this history, going back and figuring out what, what the framework for his present moment and present choices are. And it's like, and then for this, for this character, you know, they go and they go into the black community and it's it kind of ends on an ellipsis. Like he goes through a, open door. So you don't know what's going to happen. Like the thing is unwritten. And I think that is what's so interesting about this narrative potential of his story is that we don't know what's going to be written, but because we have a understanding of how media industries work, because we have an understanding of how Stuart Hall has already talked to us about double movement and the ways in which resistance will be co-opted, renamed, and then capitalized on and sold to you. What do you call it? On that new platform, you know, Disney Plus Plus. What do you call it? it? You know, it's that we already can kind of see where this is going. So there's a way in which I'm just sort of like, I think his story is interesting. I don't think it's singular. And perhaps I, maybe I also don't think it's that interesting. I think this, like, that's the thing. This is a story of resistance. This is a story of, yes, amplification. The, the things that he's amplifying are interesting because they're harrowing, because mm. they are, they are, it's looking at 
injustice it's looking at it's unsettling it is enraging it is revolution like what his what he's looking at not looking at him and i think that is the difference it's like so if he took his story and what we see it becomes a lookout a refract like he's looking out with his gaze but looking at him and then we're just gonna get i was adopted I come, it's like, it's like, it's not Brian Banks, but look, it's, it's, we can't, it's, it's not that far from it either. Mm. It's an arc. I can get you there. It's the final moments of cool runnings. You don't have to mm-hmm. win the game calling you on the class. Right. From your enemies, from ESPN. ESPN is now slow clapping to the, like, to the whole thing. That's the thing. Bars. I mean, fire. Ugh. Okay. Speaking of fire and Netflix, this is a terrible transition. Couldn't let you leave without asking you for your very sophisticated analysis about the ways Blackness is working in everybody's new favorite quarantine sport, The Floor is Lava. So The Floor is Lava is a personal favorite in my household. I rooted so hard for a trio of young Black men to get across. I think they all went to UCLA. Oh, um, two of them were basketball players. Hung on by his <laughs> fingers. <laughs> And he slipped in, and that last one, Brant jumped in and yelled, this is for Nipsey. I was rooting so hard for them. <laughs> um, the other thing is that I learned that, well, when it comes to Black subjects, lava does not discriminate. <laughs> you've, got to, you've got to hold on, people. And honestly, if you don't have upper body strength, you're not getting through this game. You're not getting, it, the ancestors are not going to carry you to the not, end. Also, the one, I don't care for the Africa room or whatever that is. I don't, uh, with I the don't Africa like that desk? one. Yeah, I don't Ooh, like I that room. every time. I'm like, every please time. stop. But I will say it is an easier one, easier than the space one. Um, Which I think is the hard. So flamethrowers, if you're, if you're like, any part of this discussion, I have to encourage you to go to Patreon and check out our latest Behind the Burn with me, Jess, Brenda, plus our angsty teenagers breaking down all things The Floor is Lava. But anyways, I just couldn't let you leave without picking your brain about that. Well, thank you so much again for coming on Burn It All Down. Again, check out Dr. Shepard's book, Sporting Blackness, Race, Embodiment, and Critical Muscle Memory on screen. It's out now with the University of California Press. You can also find it on uh, support local bookstores who have it or check Powell on Amazon. Has it. Powell um, has it. Yes. Look, you can get it. Get the book. If, yes. Contact me. I'm on Twitter at Sam Shep PhD. If you, if you can't find a copy, I kindly bought 10 of my own. I can sit <laughs> to you because, well, you know, everybody needs free books. <laughs> <laughs> on to everyone's favorite segment, the burn pile. Lindsay, can you get us started, please? Yeah, so this week we found out that reigning MVP Alea Deladon is, was not given a medical exemption for the WNBA season, despite the fact that she has Lyme disease. Uh, this puts her in a precarious position because the medical exemptions were, if people were, develop, were high risk, that means they would get to sit out this season and still receive their salary. And, um, you know, now she's she's working out something with the team um, where she's going to stay in D.C. and rehab. The team's still going to pay her. But it's still obviously not an ideal situation. And this brought up a lot of questions about the treatment of Lyme disease. It brought out a lot of questions about the validity of this process of the WNBA and the WNBA Players Association concocted for players. But the thing I want to burn is a. We're in a pandemic. If there is any doubt about the science and the condition, 
you give people a pass. <laughs> like you give people a pass. And uh and that was was my overall thing. I'd also like to burn the lack of transparency the WNBA and the WNBA Players Association has had about this entire process. I completely understand that um, we need to keep people's health in mind. I'm not asking them to out any health conditions, but the process itself should be a little bit more transparent so that things like this should um, be able to go. And I'd just like to burn the fact that our that any player felt at any time that they were literally choosing between their life and playing the sport that they love. That's not a position that any athlete should have to be in right now. I know that so many are, so many without the resources of Landell and I. I know so many frontliner workers are right now, and I would just like to burn all of it because we just got to take care of each other. That's all we've got. So let's just burn the WNBA's denial of this decision, and um, yeah, that's it. Burn. 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 So the NHL awards are nominations are upon us and the season was, was obviously bizarre because of this global pandemic. I'm just going to actually quote Himal Javeri, who we had on an episode 126. Uh, she's a writer for the win and speaking about the specific thing that I'm burning, the Lady Bing trophy. Let's talk about the Lady Bing. And the Lady Bing actually goes to a player who has, quote, exhibited the best type of sportsmanship and gentlemanly conduct, end quote. You're like, oh, what a great, what a great award. You know, we've had some really nice people in the past win this award. So our finalists are Nathan McKinnon, Ryan O'Reilly, and Austin Matthews. Wait, what? Austin Matthews? The same Austin Matthews that harassed a female security guard in September? And when she confronted him, he pulled down his pants and mooned her? Because that's what fucking gentlemanly behavior is? No. No, no, no. No. And the NHL... PA is responsible for this because they're the ones that put in the votes, the Players Association. And I think it's garbage. I think it's unacceptable. If we like a player personally, it doesn't mean that we have to be okay with their sexual harassment of others. I'm sorry, this is terrible. And it's an indication to how the NHL is really, really bad at understanding how to handle anything around domestic violence, interpersonal violence, harassment. And remember, it's the only league that doesn't actually have a policy on this. I want to take that, burn it, and throw it, torch it in the burn pile. Burn. 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 Mira. Yeah. In the last few weeks, we have seen an alarming amount of anti-Semitism, particularly from Black men in athletics and entertainment. And I just wanted to address that, um, first of all, to say that it's absolutely abhorrent. It's anti-Semitic, even if people are confused with that classification. I mean, read a book, please. Um, But it is, and there's no place for it. There's none. I would like to start by saying from Deshaun Jackson sharing a fake Hitler quote, there's no, it, first of all, it's fake, but even if it wasn't, like, there's nothing that should say to you, cool, I'm going to share a Hitler quote. Nothing, nothing. I just, I don't even have to contextualize that because there's no, there's nothing. To Nick Cannon, who's obviously not in sports, but when we see other people like Dwayne Wade or Stephen Jackson defending them and then reigniting long-held debates about Minister Farrakhan, it, it feels like we're kind of on a wheel around and round and round again. 
we have too many truth tellers who aren't homophobic, who aren't misogynistic, who aren't anti-Semitic. We have too many of them to give people like Farrakhan a platform. We have too many truth tellers for people like Deshaun Jackson and Stephen and, and Dwayne Wade to think that this is the anti-Black conspiracy. Look around. White supremacy is everywhere. And just because they're saying something that you want to hear that uplifts you in one way doesn't mean you ignore all the other hate they're spewing. Stop giving them platforms. Stop co-signing when people try to defend their platforms. Get behind somebody who's for all of us because, hi, Black Jews exist. So this is anti-Semitic and it needs to stop, especially during a moment where we're seeing a rise of anti-Semitism and and violent crimes against Jewish people. Cut it out. If you're not for all of us, which includes Black Jews or Black women and Black gay people, if you're not for all of us, then you can't be pro-Black. So shut down your anti-Semitism. Shut down your other stupid-ass comments. Take your hotel asses somewhere else. We don't need it here. We don't. Burn it down. Burn. Burn. After all that burning, we would like to lift up some incredible people. First of all, our heartfelt condolences to the family and community of Olympic figure skater Ekaterina Alexandrovskaya, who died at 20 in Moscow. She attained Australian citizenship citizenship in 2016. And then she and partner Harry Windsor represented Australia and won the 2017 World Juniors. We are thinking of her family and friends during this time. Would like to shout out the women of the Afghanistan Women's National Team who stood up, including Khalida Popal and Kelly Lindsay, both former guests of Bayad. This week, the Court of Arbitration in Sport finally implemented a life ban on former Afghanistan Football Association President Karamuddin Karim. Would like to shout out NWSL player Bethany Balser, who opened up about having an anxiety attack while on the pitch during the Challenge Cup. And too often, we only talk about mental health struggles when they're far in the rearview mirror. But athletes like Balser help change the conversation forever with their honesty. Can I get a drum roll, please? Our badass woman of the week is Rhiannon Walker. We at Burn It All Down offer all of our love and solidarity to her. She wrote a very poignant and powerful piece for The Athletic about moving forward from sexual harassment. We also want to express solidarity with Nora Pinciotti, the other reporter who went on the record about harassment in the story, as well as Emily Applegate, whose voice you heard earlier in the show, and other 14 former Washington employees who spoke to the Washington Post about the harassment they received. Now, what's good? Lindsay. You know, it's been a little bit better of a week. Um, I've gotten caught up on sleep. I prioritized that because I realized I hadn't slept in about a month. And so I've, for more than five hours a night, so I've gotten a little bit caught up on sleep this week. I'm feeling, just feeling better all around. And it's taken a lot of hard work to get here. Um, But I'm going to, you know, enjoy it. It turns out that like taking your pills on time and doing a little exercise and eating like well-rounded meals um, and sleeping, it makes you feel better. <laughs> that's really annoying. <laughs> so, But um, I'm going to keep it up. So that's what's good right now. My what's good, and I usually have a lie, like a wide variety of things. I'm just going to get straight to it and say the Portland Thorn Bitches, only team in the NWSL to score in the quarterfinals. 
Ooh, we've been enjoying the Challenge Cup tremendously. I have also been enjoying the tremendous Challenge Cup because my team won. So I'm very, very excited about that. Also, thank you to Dr. Amiros Davis for continuously giving me ideas on how to spend my time. Amir introduced me to this thing a couple months ago, and it's wild, y'all. It's an audiobook. So somebody reads a story to me. So it's just, I've never, you know, I'm not like, I don't listen to a bunch of podcasts and I never tried an audiobook. So I'm very excited about this. The first one I started was on her recommendation, Isabel Wilkerson's Warmth of Another Sun. And I'm just, it's, it's incredible. It's like a very cool feeling. Also, acupressure mat. If those of you that heard the show last week, Amira got one. And when I was listening to the show, I was like, I want one of these things. So I promptly went on and got myself one and I'm really enjoying it. I will give you a full review next week because I just feel like I need to use it more than three times to give it like a fair review. But those are things that are really good. My zucchini plant is giving me a little bit of stress, but I just think that she's just being a little bit moody and it's fine because it's really hot up here. But that's about it. So yeah, Mira, what about you? I searched really hard to have what's good that wasn't Peloton related this week. I would just <laughs> like everybody to know that. So my what's good will be uh, me and Mari watch fighting with my family. I don't know what took me so long to discover this movie. I scrolled past it every time I saw it because it was like the rock and like people and wrestling and not my thing, but Oh my God, it totally is my thing. First of all, the main character is played by Florence Pugh, who is a genius. She's Amy March in the revival of The Little Women, if you remember. And also, Lena Headley is her mom. That's Cersei. First of all, did you know we needed an Amy March-Cersei matchup? I didn't know I needed it. But they have range, and they're brilliant, and it was gorgeous. It was a beautiful, real-life movie about um, of a family from Norwich, England, uh, and the daughter goes and gets the spot in the WWE, and it's a true story, and it was delightful, and it was funny, and they said the phrase, fuck me dead and bury me pregnant. <laughs> and that phrase is literally my what's good. So there's that. I also want to, on a more serious note, talk about losing just absolute titans, uh, C.T. Vivian and John Lewis on the same day. If you are unfamiliar with C.T. Vivian, he was a field general for the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. He was a minister and a civil rights fighter. He was such a powerful man. John Lewis, of course, was former chairman of SNCC, turned congressman. And if you haven't checked out March or actually now his documentary, Good Trouble on His Life, is now available or watch Eyes on the Prize and see both of them, these men. But I just wanted to say, as a historian and just generally as a Black people, like it, we're losing our stories. We're losing our ancestors in real time. The congressman was the last living person, last living speaker at the March on Washington in 63. And sometimes I think we've taken for granted their being here and their leading and or we've mocked them or or said they haven't gone far enough. And we're standing on the shoulders of giants. We're walking because they walked. We're voting because they got their heads beaten on the road, literally bleeding out on the road, on the concrete, so that we could vote. 
like the the years they've seen talk talk to your elders capture their stories listen listen to their words it's so important to do that and to give people roses before they pass i'm in another way so grateful that both men had long lives that was a privilege that not everybody in the movement had they saw so they buried so many people they went to so many funerals the fact that they live this long is in and of itself phenomenal for the work that they were committed to and so it's also very hard to lose them on a week where we've seen police beating protesters where we've seen tactics used against civil rights protesters being wielded today where people have the nerve to have their name his, their names in their mouth that are completely antithetical to their entire body of work Marco Rubio Mitch McConnell you are the systems they're talking about maybe tweet the right fucking picture of the black politician that you're trying to mourn it's it's and it's painful because even in death it feels devoid of humanity and compassion when people get it that wrong so i'll just end by saying that we have to resist romanticized memorials as if the work that they were committed to had been done, as if we have reached the mountaintop, as if it's over. It's impossible to romanticize them in that way because the fight is very clearly raging on. C.T. Vivian said, people do not choose rebellion, it is forced upon them. Revolution is always an act of self-defense. And I want to leave you today with the words that John Lewis spoke at the March on Washington. And wait, we must set every ten occupation. We do not want our freedom gradually, but we want to be free now. We are tired. We are tired of being beaten by policemen. We're tired of seeing our people locked up in jail over and over again. And then you holler, be patient. How long can we be patient? We want our freedom and we want it now. Don't be patient. Stir up some good trouble. Go forth, flamethrowers. With the light and the leadership and the blueprint that these men have given, that women have given, that fighters have given, that the generations that we walk in the wake of have given to us. It is a privilege to follow behind them. Let's do it. That's it for this week and Burn It All Down. And although we are done for now, you can always burn all day and night in our fabulous array of merchandise, including mugs, pillows, tees, hoodies, bags, And what a better way to crush toxic patriarchy in sports and sports media by getting somebody you love a pillow with our logo on it. Check out our Teespring store. Burn It All Down lives on SoundCloud, can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn, anywhere you find podcasts. We appreciate your reviews and feedback. So please subscribe and rate and let us know what we did well and how we can improve. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Burn It All Down Pod. And on Twitter at Burn It Down Pod. You can email us at burnitalldownpod at gmail.com. And check out our website, www.burnitalldownpod.com, 
where you will find previous episodes, transcripts, guest lists, and a link to our Patreon. We would appreciate you subscribing, sharing, and rating our show, which really helps us to do the work we love to do and keep burning what needs to be burned. We wish you safety, health, and whatever joys you can muster during this chaotic and unprecedented time. And as Brenda always says, burn on and not out. <laughs>